Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. My name is Connor Bales. I'm so excited uh, to be with you here this morning. We start a brand new sermon series today entitled, Let Me Explain. And when you walked in this morning, uh, you should have gotten a resource guide that looks just like this. Here's what this is. This is our gift to you. Uh, We created this, wrote uh, the content within it, included a bunch of articles and uh, resources that we think will be uh, a benefit to you as a companion throughout this series to help undergird uh, the teaching that we're going to cover. We really want to grow in depth of understanding as to why we believe what we believe. The whole point of this sermon series, this Christian apologetic, is for you and I to be able to have a conversation, and when challenged about something that we believe or a conviction that we hold, us to be able to take the hand of someone and gently say to them, well, let me explain. And so that is, that is the aim, and here's really where this was uh, uh, originated. I don't know if you've ever been challenged about something you believe or a conviction that you hold, and, and then you found yourself unable to rightly defend it. Is anybody... Has anybody ever been there? You, you just, like, you've been challenged about something, but then when you're asked to explain why you believe that something, you find it hard uh, to do that. In conversations, here's what I have discovered. There's usually one of four reasons why a person will believe uh, a conviction that they, that they hold. The, the first is, is that it's upbringing. Like, I was just raised that way, you know what I'm saying? So a lot of us will just say, well, I believe this. Why do you believe that? Well, that's how my mom and daddy taught me to believe. That's how I was just raised that way, and, I, and so that's why I believe that way, okay? Others, I have found, uh, believe that way, uh, and they don't know why. There's just a gross ignorance there, and, there, and like Facebook is the playground for the ignorant. You've seen that, right? Like it's, it's just this idea of people articulating or arguing uh, for a position or for a value and then not really knowing why it is that they hold to it. I, I've also known and seen people uh, have a reason for believing or holding to a conviction based on bad information. Really, this is... This is entirely popular today. We are in a culture that is saturated with bad information. Like anybody at any time can be a newsman or woman simply with a 140 character tweet. Uh, they can communicate something. And if somebody is unwilling to verify or validate what it is that has been said, it can be believed as, as truth. And so some people just hold to a value or conviction based on bad information. And then uh, lastly... People believe something or hold to a value or a conviction based on well-informed truth. And, and that's where we ought to be as believers. When someone challenges us on why we believe what we believe, we want to be able to explain from a position of well-informed truth. And this leads then to the first conviction that we have here in week number one, which is let me explain why I believe 
the Bible. Let me explain why I believe the Bible. Now, tragically, I will say that when it comes to the Bible, many professing Christians don't know why they believe what they believe. Like in the United States, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey in 2018. And did you know that 80%, I was just sharing this with a friend uh, this morning, 80% of Americans believe in God, okay? But less than 25% of America of Americans believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Now think about the disparity there. 80% believe in God. Less than 25% believe the Bible is uh, the Word of God. I don't know how many of you remember when Jay Leno was hosting The Tonight Show, he used to conduct uh, these man-on-the-street interviews he called jaywalking. Does anybody remember the segments called jaywalking? Okay, many times Jay Leno would uh, ask people biblical questions to see if they had any knowledge or understanding of God's Word. I'll give you a few of my favorite uh, responses. Uh, when Jay Leno asked a man who found the burning bush in the famous Old Testament story. Do you know what he said in response? Nixon. <laughs> Serious, like Nixon. All right, he said, Jay Leno asked this question. Uh, who was swallowed by the whale? And this woman had such a confused look on her face that Jay started to feed her the answer. He says, Joe, and she said, DiMaggio. <laughs> like, <laughs> Joe DiMaggio got swallowed by a whale? What do we, here's the next one. Uh, who were Cain and Abel? Uh, this lady says, is that a TV sitcom? <laughs> and then lastly, uh, Jay Leno said, fill in the blank. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbors. And the guy says, car? <laughs> we break that commandment every day. That's not in there, okay? The ignorance about and around the subject of the Bible is real. And it is tragic. I've heard it said before, the Bible is the most unread bestseller of all time. But as for us, I want to explain why we're starting our series, um, the Let Me Explain series, uh, with the Bible. For Christians, the Bible serves us as our foundation. The Bible is what our faith itself is built upon. And everybody, all of us, know the significance of a firm foundation. We know the value, at least in construction efforts, of having a structure set upon a solid foundation. Before uh, this building was erected and the, and, the, and the walls were put into place and, and the skin was put on the outside, the first thing the contractor did was, was develop and construct a very firm uh, foundation. In fact, the tallest building in the world, I want to go to Dubai one day and see this, but it's, it's in Dubai, and it is called the Burj Khalifa or the Burj Dubai. It's the tallest building in the world. I have a picture of it. The, uh, just so you have it in comparison, the other buildings that surround it are, are skyscrapers in and of themselves, okay? So this tells you just how massive this structure is. Well, the engineers and architects knew, given the size and significance of the structure, that they were going to really need to engineer and well construct a firm foundation. So they uh, 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 designed it for 58,900 cubic yards of concrete to be used in the foundation. It weighs 110,000 tons of concrete in the foundation. There are 194 steel and concrete piers that are each one drilled 165 feet 
into the ground upon which this building uh, sits. The cost of constructing the foundation alone was $271 million. Now ask yourself, why would that building's foundation get that much attention and resources and money? Because the strength of a foundation determines the integrity of the structure. And so, as followers of Jesus Christ, who would say that we believe the Bible is true, we believe that it is God's word, we believe that the Bible is to be obeyed, we believe the Bible can be trusted, that serves as our foundation upon which all our convictions are built. And my hope is, is that today we might better understand why that is true. A longtime pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Dallas, a man named W.A. Criswell, wrote concerning the Bible, and he said this, You wouldn't know God without the book. You wouldn't know Jesus Christ, not even his name, without the book. You'd have no assurance of salvation or of heaven without the book. Our whole life and hope lies in the promise and assurance and revelation of the Lord God written here in the book. Now, admittedly, I want to just lay my cards on the table today. This sermon is going to feel different. You know from my preaching and from those of us that communicate God's word, we normally ask you or invite you to turn in your Bibles to a a specific place in the scriptures and then we teach from that place. Well, today we're not going to find one single place in the scriptures, but rather we're going to cover quite a few of the scriptures in hopes that it might stir our affections for the God of the scriptures. So today is admittedly going to be a little different. Also, I want to say that essentially what I'm doing is preaching an apologetic on why we believe the Bible uh, to be true. And, And so I'm going to do so giving you four convictions about God's word that we hold. And so it is at times going to feel a little thick. It is going to be full of a lot of content. But my hope is, is that all of this content and all of this material simply stirs your affections for the God of the book. That is the aim of every part of our conversation here today. So if you're a note taker, this is going to minister to your heart. Grab your pen and paper, and uh, here's the first uh, conviction that I want to share. Let me explain why I believe the Bible. Because the Bible is inspired by God. Let me explain why I believe the Bible, because the Bible is inspired by God. I'm going to invite you to grab your Bible and to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll start reading together in verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul is the author of this book to his younger brother in the faith, a man named Timothy, who was a local New Testament church pastor. And when Paul writes to Timothy, he's going to speak to him about the scriptures that Timothy would have been preaching and teaching to his local first century New Testament church. And this is what is written in the Bible, speaking about the Bible. Listen to what is said. All scripture, if you mark or highlight in your Bibles, I want you to circle those two words, all scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Now, it's significant that we see what Paul says happens here. He says all Scripture is breathed out. The phrase breathed out in the Greek uh, language is actually a combination of two separate words. The first is theos. The second is pneuma. It is God and then spirit. So the idea here is that God's spirit is who uh, gives us uh, the, the Bible or gives us the scriptures. And when you are tempted to want to think, well, what scriptures? Paul makes it very clear, all of them. All of the scriptures are breathed out. They are God-given by the Spirit, and they serve a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's uh, word to, to us. Now, the Apostle Peter also wrote to the New Testament church, and he explained further upon which uh, uh, this idea that Paul begins to build. Peter says, okay, well, if all Scripture is breathed out by God, it is theos pneuma, then here's how the work of God through his Spirit uh, makes this uh, true for us. And this is what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and, uh, t- through 21. Here's what he says. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So he's referencing all of the Bible that they had at this point, which was the Old Testament and then some of the early New Testament writings. So no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Okay, so how does this happen? How does this theos pneuma Uh, take place. Well, men spoke from God, okay, as they were carried along by the Spirit. Uh, In the Greek, the uh, words there, carried along, it can also be translated as move. It is a nautical term. It implies the the way that wind would move a boat. Uh, That is the way that the Spirit moves human authors to understand what it is that God would have them to record. And, And so, that's how God's Spirit has therefore inspired God's Word. We would say that the Bible then is written by men, but under the inspiration of God. And, and this is not divine dictation, but rather God himself using the personalities, circumstances, and backgrounds of various human authors to compose a Bible that God himself has inspired. These authors write in the direction that God gives, producing exactly what God desires. And here's why this matters. Because we can all agree that our world is changing, yes? It's changing rapidly. In fact, a few years ago, before he was elected president, then-candidate Donald Trump began to uh, share most of his message uh, via Twitter. It was the way that he engaged with the American uh, uh, population at large, is that he would tweet uh, readily and freely. And, and I remember a few years ago having a conversation with my mother, and I was like, did you see what Donald Trump tweeted today? And she was like, Connor, I don't even own a Twitter. <laughs> that, 
Well, that's not how, it's fine, Mom. Just, it's fine. Things are changing, right? The world is changing, and it matters that we hold to a conviction of the Bible as the inspired Word of God because the one thing that is unchanging in a world where everything else is, is the nature and character of God. That is the one unchanging constant. You don't have to turn there, but look on the screen behind me. I'm going to read to you just some of what God's Word says about His unchanging character and nature. It says in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that God is not a man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not fulfill it? How about what Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27 would say? Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. How about the writer of Hebrews, speaking on the person of Jesus, says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How about the half-brother of Jesus, uh, James, who wrote the New Testament epistle bearing his name? It says in James 1, 17, that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So look up here at me. Since God doesn't change, then God's word doesn't change. Because God is unchanging, his word is also unchanging. And it's important that we understand the unchanging nature of God's word because it is the, uh, a primary way in which he reveals himself to us. It's not the only way, but it is a primary way. I have five children. My youngest, Campbell, is five years old. She loves to play hide-and-seek with her daddy. And here's what's fascinating about Campbell playing hide-and-seek. She hides so that she is found, right? Like she loves it. It's like the, she gets the excited feeling. So she'll say, you know, I'll say, Cam, I can't find you. And she's literally standing with the closet door swung open and standing behind it and looking around. She's like, I don't know where I am, daddy. Okay. And so then I find her. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I couldn't see you. And she's like, I know, Dad, I was hiding. She hides to be found because she loves this. Listen, so has God. God has hidden himself to be found. Now, he has hidden himself to be found in creation. I was coming up 300 this morning as the sun was breaking. And the Bible is going to say in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, that all the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above are his handiwork. I saw that. I saw that. He's going to reveal himself. He's hiding to be found not only in creation but in our conscience. The writer of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 is going to say that God has written eternity onto the hearts of men. He's hidden himself to be found not only in our conscience but also in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, John 1, 14, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. He's hidden Himself to be found not only in the Son, but also in the Scriptures. Jesus speaks and says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds, what? From the mouth of God. So, right, God hides Himself, but He hides Himself to be found, and the Scriptures are one of the ways in which He does that. Great reformer, Martin Luther, who is responsible for initiating the Protestant Reformation, says, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. So, we believe that the Bible, all of it, is the inspired Word of God. It is entirely sufficient truth. It has zero mixture of any error. It is infallible. It is inerrant because it is inspired as God's Word. 
Here's the second argument I would make. Let me explain why I believe the Bible, because the Bible is a reliable document. It is a reliable document. It is the best-selling book and most widely distributed document in all of history. How many of you, by show of hands, would say that you own more than one Bible? That's, yeah, basically all of us, every one of us. And listen, given the historical popularity of the book, there is nothing else in literature that can compare to it. Uh, the Wycliffe Bible translators tell us that the entire Bible has been translated into 683 different languages. The New Testament alone has been translated into 1,534 different languages. And currently, 2,658 different language groups have some portions of the Bible with ongoing uh, language projects in process. Now, by comparison, the next most translated books of all time <clears throat> are Pinocchio, which has been translated into just a few more than 300 different languages. The French children's book, The Little Prince, which has been translated into about 300 different languages. The heretical document uh, composed by the Jehovah's Witnesses entitled, What Does the Bible Really Teach?, which has been translated into about 272 different languages. The philosophical Chinese work, Tao Te Ching, which has been translated into about 250 different languages. And Pilgrim's Progress, which has been translated into about 200 different languages. The Bible, 683 different language translations have the entirety of God's word. And in case you're tempted to think, well, the work of translation must be done, Wycliffe tells us that 180 million people have no access to a Bible representing 1,879 different language groups with no work of Scripture. And 1.5 billion people don't have the full Bible in their original language. So there's much work to be done. And with the widespread, widespread distribution and popularity has also come great scrutiny and persecution. Think about what the Bible has had to survive. I don't know if I can lay hands on my high school yearbook and... I know we've moved a few times, and it's been shoved in this box and that box, and I don't know how much longer my high school yearbook is going to survive. First of all, I don't know if I can find it. Second of all, I don't know what kind of condition it's going to be in. Think about what the Bible has endured. Let me just say this. Um, in 303 AD, Roman Emperor Diocletian uh, decided that every Bible in the world should be destroyed and every person who possessed one should be slain. He is quoted as famously saying this, Christians are a people of the book, and if you destroy the book, you will destroy the people. But you know what the book says about the book? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. How about John Wycliffe, born in England, had a passion for the scriptures to be translated into the English language. And although he faced great opposition to his work, he worked diligently so that every common man could read the Bible in his own tongue. In 1384, at the age of 56, Wycliffe died of a stroke. But some 43 years later, church officials who were still angry about his writing and translation efforts dug up his body and burned his remains in an effort to discourage anyone from continuing his good work. But did you know that the grass withers and the flower will fade, but the word of God will stand forever? 
How about William Tyndale? He was born in 1494. He was a brilliant man. He had a passion for Bible translation. This guy was smart. He graduated with a master's degree from university at the age of 21, having mastered eight different languages. Um, He once told a Roman clergyman who opposed his work greatly, If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. He was strangled and burned at the stake at the age of 42, but listen, four years after his death, the king of England ordered all of the Bibles to be translated, published, and printed so that you and I might have what we know today as the King James Version of the book. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Not only has the book been persecuted, but it's been greatly scrutinized. The Bible continues to set the standard for reliability among all forms of ancient literature. I'm going to share with you just a little bit of the widely available data that speaks to the reliability of God's Word. First of all, you should know that the Bible is not Uh, a book necessarily, but a collection of books uh, collectively. It is 66 books in total, uh, 39 books from our Old Testament and 27 uh, books from our New Testament. It has been composed by more than 40 different authors, and they come from all walks of life. Some are prophets, poets, shepherds, scholars, kings, priests, fishermen, physicians, rabbis, and common laborers. The Bible was composed over a time span of 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and on Europe. It is composed of three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and was written in a number of different places, dungeons and palaces, uh, tents, and in the desert. The the Bible has a wide variety uh, of thousands of stories, thousands of characters, historical facts, medical help, archaeological truth included throughout, and yet it tells one main story. That is God's love for his creation. And it is all about one main character, the person Jesus Christ. And it has one main theme, and that is God's plan for redeeming all things that have been lost. Now, when it comes to validating ancient literature, the measurement that scholars use is something called comparative analysis. Comparative analysis is a measure, uh, measurement that allows a, an ancient text uh, to pass what the scholars are going to tell us is a, bibliolog- a bibliographical test. Anytime you don't have the original uh, document or what is known as the autograph, Uh, you have to ask how many copies of the document and what age of the copies uh, do we have that are uh, available uh, for us uh, to to measure, to validate its, its authenticity. And since we don't have any of the original autographs of any ancient historical literature, including the Bible, then we have to make a comparative analysis of it to see if it can pass the bibliographical test and if, in fact, the Bible can be trusted. So I'm going to give you a comparative analysis this morning so that you might know the Bible you hold in your hand, the one that we said we have multiple copies of at our home, how does it stack up to other forms of ancient literature that culture is going to say can be valued as true? Okay, so Plato's Tetralogies. Everybody is familiar with the scholar Plato. 
We have seven copies of Plato's Tetralogies. The original was composed in 400 BC, but the earliest copied manuscript that we have was written in 900 AD, about 1300 years later. Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. We have 10 copies of this work. The original was composed in 60 BC, and the earliest copied manuscript that we have is 900 AD, almost 1,000 years later. Homer's Iliad. We have 643 copies of this work. The original was written in 900 BC. The earliest copied manuscript is written in 400 BC, about 500 years later. Aristotle's Poetics. We have 49 copies of this work. Original was written in 343 BC, and the earliest copied manuscript is written in 1100 AD, about 1400 years after its origin. Now the Bible. We have 10,000 manuscripts in part or in whole of the Old Testament in the Hebrew language alone. We have 5,000 manuscripts in portion or in the whole in the Greek New Testament alone. And the earliest copied manuscript is recorded about 200 A.D., less than 100 years after the original autograph was recorded. Listen, think time, gap, and age. The Bible has no comparison in its manuscript evidence by comparative analysis. In fact, the late uh, Dr. Bruce Metzger, who was a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, one of the world's foremost scholars on Greek and New Testament literature, said this, and I quote, The quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works of antiquity. So listen, there really is no comparison to the Bible. Even historians who are skeptic have mostly stopped trying to discredit, to discredit the Bible using manuscript evidence against it. Okay, but what about others who are going to question the accuracy of the Bible? I can't tell you how many times somebody has asked me, well, Pastor, um, doesn't the Bible contain errors and contradict itself? That's a good question. It's a fair question. And let me give you the answer. Get ready to write this down. No. No, the Bible doesn't contain errors or contradict itself. When independent experts and scholars examine the Bible by comparing the manuscripts, the so-called errors are almost all grammatical. And never once has any single language expert concluded the textual variants change any principled meaning or theological truth. In the book Reinventing Jesus, the authors say... By far, the most significant number of variants is spelling differences. The name John, for example, may be spelled with one N or with two. Clearly, a variation of this sort in no way jeopardizes the meaning of the text. Spelling differences account for 75% of all variants. The writers go on and they explain that the other 25% of textual variants have something to do with synonyms, such as one copy saying the word he, and another copy saying the word Lord, and a third copy saying that person's actual name. But again, there are absolutely zero differences that threaten the meaning of the text. And here's why accuracy matters. Because if it can't be trusted, if accuracy can't be determined, in the manuscripts themselves, then we can make the Bible say whatever it is we want and the truth will be distorted for all of the lifetime that it has been preserved. 
So, for example, how many of you remember playing the children's game telephone growing up? Anybody? So here's how telephone works. So if I tell my man Daniel a secret here in just a moment, and I ask Daniel to whisper that to Catherine, she whispers it to Stacy, she tells Jerry, and then by the time that secret gets over here to Jimmy, it is going to be an entirely distorted truth. Entirely distorted. It won't be the same thing at all. Well, listen, the Bible has been handed down for thousands of years, and yet with a 99.6% accuracy and the only variation being grammatical textual variance, we know that our Bible is accurate. It is reliable and therefore it is to be trusted. How about science and history? The Bible has also proven themselves to be true. Many of our modern medical practices find their origin in the Bible. If you just think about some of the Old Testament practices Moses gave to the people of Israel, when they became sick, they were to be outside of the camp. This was to keep the camp from getting infested with the illness. This was instruction from God for his people. How about the ceremonial washing? Yes, it had a spiritual component, but if someone was determined to be unclean, then the washing would have been a, a, a way in which they could have properly cleansed it. Well, they didn't know to do that. This was God's instruction to his people, and modern medicine has taken full advantage. Archaeology has proven the existence of 40 different kings, which are found in the Bible. In Luke's writings alone, you know, Luke wrote the gospel bearing his name. He also wrote the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, Luke references uh, 32 different countries, 54 different cities, nine different islands, all of which have been historically confirmed as accurate. And our time today doesn't even allow me to dive into the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies which are found only in the Bible. And again, it matters because our Bible is reliable. It's reliable. Here's the third argument that I would make. Let me explain why I believe the Bible. You ready? Because the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Uh, all of us know the dangers in trying to convince someone uh, that something is right simply by saying, because I said so. Like with our kids, we will say, like, you know, go clean your room. And when they ask why, you're like, because I said so. But as we get older, that argument uh, it's going to fall apart. We're going to need to have a well-informed reason why we believe something that we uh, believe. Well, uh, because we believe the Bible is inspired by God, reliable to trust, then it is also authoritative for our lives. And I want to suggest that when approaching the Scriptures, we do so with two absolutes in understanding. The first is this. This is important for us to see, especially today. We must understand that the Bible is a truth-based book, not a therapy-based book. The Bible is a truth-based book, not a therapy-based book. The second uh, absolute that we must hold to when approaching the Scriptures is that the Bible's aim is transformation, not information dissemination. The Bible's aim is Transformation, not information dissemination. Now, with those absolutes in mind, we understand that God's word is true and that truth doesn't take into consideration how we feel about it. Let me explain. The Bible is a truth book, not a therapy-based book. Here's what I mean. We don't go to the Bible and read the Bible in hopes that we're always going to feel better about ourselves after we have done so. In fact, 
if you're really reading the Bible, sometimes you're going to feel worse because the Bible is going to reveal some things because it is true about your life that are not good. So I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the doctor's office, and I have a hope, I have a feeling, I just hope the doctor's going to say something that's good. Like, okay, I hope that the seizures are contained, or I hope she will learn to walk. But the doctor's job is not to tell me what I want to hear. The doctor's job is to share with me the diagnosis or the truth that the test has revealed. Well, that's what God's Word does. But we are in danger as a people when we try to take our feelings and impose them upon the Scriptures, when the Scriptures have been given by God as true, and our feelings have to adjust to that. Does this make sense? And I'll give you a a good example. A, A current practical example for us to see is the issue of transgenderism. Okay, In, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 27, and I'm going to turn there so I don't mess it up. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in our fallen and broken world, we may feel differently. Okay, I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. But the truth of God's word is that biologically he has given two sexes, male and female. And that must be the standard by which we live and by which we operate. And then when we feel differently, we must adjust according to what the Bible has declared to be true. Okay? Uh, How about uh, uh, that the Bible is... Uh, a, tra- a book of transformation, not merely uh, information dissemination. You know, too many people are reading God's Word in an effort to try to simply extract the history or the archaeology or the events that have taken place and been recorded uh, in, in the Bible. But, but the truth is, the Bible isn't simply to be read as a history textbook, even though it's full of history. It's not simply to be read as a medical journal, even though we find great medical truth. The Bible is not to be read as merely apocalyptic literature, even though there is a great deal of prophecy uh, that has been fulfilled and prophecy which is to come. No, the Bible is to be understood as a book that is transformational in nature. And because of that, uh, it, it is God's work in us. Uh, when we read the Bible, it does this redemptive, renewing work because its aim is transformation, not simply information dissemination. Which leads me to my last point. Let me explain why I believe the Bible. Because the Bible is transformational. It's transformational. I've made the statement many times before because I believe in my core that it is true. The more you read your Bible, the more your Bible will read you. The more you read your Bible, the more your Bible will read you. The reason we hold to the transformational work of God's Word is because it is a living document, because it is God who has given it. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. It's living. It's active. The more you read God's Word, the more God's Word will read you. Ask any person you know that is faithful about spending time in God's Word, and they will tell you that it's because of the life that God's Word gives them. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 6, verse 63, when he says, 
It is the spirit who gives life. The life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You understand that God's word gives life. The living word of God does the powerful work of God in the lives of those who read it and submit themselves to it. There's a great English philosopher, a man named John Locke. Much of his writing um, led to what you and I understand and enjoy as American democracy even today. John Locke is recorded about the Bible as saying this, The Bible is one of the greatest blessings bestowed by God on the children of men. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture for its matter. It is all pure, all sincere, nothing too much, nothing wanting. So here's the question that I want to leave you with today. If the Bible is inspired by God, reliable for us, authoritative for our lives, and transformational for our hearts, then what are we supposed to do with the Bible? I want to give you four things. I want to encourage you with these four things practically that you can do with the Bible. You ready? The first is we must read God's Word. you got to read it. Like I said at the beginning of the sermon, the, the Bible's been quoted as being the most unread bestseller of all time. But we got to read it. We get, listen, I hope one of the things you like about New Beginnings Baptist Church is that every single Sunday when we get up, what we're going to say is grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles and go to, and then we're going to go to a particular text, and we're going to read and teach the Bible. Well, you need to be a people that read the Word, that trust the, that there's value in, in the Bible. So we want to we read the Bible. And some of you are thinking, well, how do I get started? Well, you just do. Just get started. And I would say maybe start in the New Testament. Start in the book of John. And, uh, and start reading through the Gospel of John. And you'll get to see the entire uh, a narrative of Jesus and the work of the Gospel uh, in, your, in your life. Once you get through the book of John, then you can go back and you can read through the Psalms. And, 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 and just see the way that worship takes place. Uh, in the heart, and you can relate to the psalmists as they write about their ups and their downs uh, and trusting God in the middle of, of, of all of it. But you got to read the Bible. The second is we must obey God's Word. So we read the Bible and then we obey it. I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling appointments, I can see people getting frustrated when an issue surfaces and I will challenge that issue with what I know to be God's truth. Well, very quickly, what I will do is then grab a copy of God's Word and show them what it says on this particular subject that they're wrestling with because I want to let them know, I'm not, I'm not just, this isn't me. I, this is what God's Word says. So if you're getting frustrated, you're getting frustrated with Him, not me. But we've got to submit ourselves to the Word. We've got to obey it. If God's Word tells us that we are to be generous people, then that's what it should look like. We should be generous people. God's Word tells us that we should be faithful, then that's what we should do. We should be faithful. If we're to be honest, then that's what we should do. We should be honest. If we're to be compassionate, then that's how we live. We live with compassion. Because, why? Because God's Word says it. So we read it and we obey it. The next is we memorize it. We memorize it. I can't tell you what a benefit it has been for me the last several years to undertake seriously the spiritual discipline of Scripture memorization. If you'll... Let me, I'll just show you, in the front of my Bible, I keep a bunch of note cards um, because our executive staff, 
meets together every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, to uh, think through the week and review the weekend. And uh, one of the things we do for prayer and accountability is we memorize scripture together. And uh, when we're in this meeting, there's five of us, um, we will start the meeting off by saying, hey, you got, you got the scripture yet? And then we recite it to one another with our Bibles open, and you better have it or else you're going to get razzed. And so I write it on note cards. And then I just make sure I pick time out during the week when I can, uh, when I can memorize it and commit it to memory. Um, so, and here's the thing. When we memorize God's word, here's what it does. When the Bible says in John's gospel, Jesus says that the spirit brings to remembrance uh, what God has taught. That I can't tell you how many hospital rooms I've walked into and I don't know what to say. Um, but the 23rd Psalm will just come rolling out. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. Leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley. You know, right? I mean, I'm, I don't have the words in that moment. I can't tell you how many times with my kiddos that I haven't had the words, you know, but I've, I've got God's word, and so I'm able to give, you know, in this world you will face trial, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right, John 16, 33. So I'm able to not give them my just dad advice, but I'm able to impart to them the living, active word of God. Why? Because I've hidden it in my heart. So we should memorize it. And some of you are thinking, well, I'm just not good at scripture memory. Yes, you are. Like if I started singing Ice, Ice, Baby, you could finish it. <laughs> because we, we memorize our music, right? We memorize our music. So we must memorize God's word. And then lastly, we want to share it. We must share God's word. Here's the deal, and I, I want to specifically speak to the parents and the grandparents in the room. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that these are the things we should teach to our children. Like if your kid can hit a curveball, but he doesn't know the value of God's word, you're failing him. Right? Right? Like, if, if your granddaughter is making straight A's, but you've never shown her the truth of the gospel from the, the living word that reveals it, you're failing her. So parents and grandparents, I want to encourage, there is nothing more important than you can do than impart to your children a passion for God's word. You know, it's been said before, a, person's, uh, a person who has a Bible falling apart probably has a life that is not. And your Bible ought to just be torn up because we're just in it all the time, reading it, studying it, and sharing it. And so I want to encourage you to do that. I read a quote this week. I couldn't find who to attribute it to, but it was too good for me not to share it with you this morning, so I want to end with this. The Christians who have turned the world upside down have been men and women with a vision in their heart and a Bible in their hands. Listen, the Bible is believe because it is inspired, reliable, authoritative, and transformational. So let me explain why I believe the Bible. Because it's God's word. It's God's word. 